This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. For people of many faiths, the worldview of science is at war with the worldview of religion, and vice versa. As head of the Human Genome Project, our guest today, Dr. Francis Collins, works at the cutting edge of the study of DNA, yet he is also a man of unshakable faith in the God and Scripture of Christianity. He believes in a personal God that can intervene in human affairs, on rare occasions even miraculously. Collins has discovered some of the scientific evidence for the common descent of all living creatures, even though he repudiates the materialist, atheistic worldview argued by many prominent Darwinists. In his new book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief, Collins combines faith in God and faith in science into one worldview. Francis Collins, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks. Nice to join you. Oh, thanks for being with us today. How are you doing? Oh, no problem. Doing fine. Uh, hard at work today on genomics. Very good. And, and uh, where are you located? In Bethesda, Maryland, which is where the National Institutes of Health is located. Very good. Do you, is, has global warming descended there in Bethesda? <laughs> <laughs> in August, you would think it's been globally warm for as long as people can remember. It gets really steamy around here. Oh, really? Well, now, you describe yourself as a young man as, uh, I think it's obnoxious atheist. Oh, I'm afraid so. Uh, can can you uh, tell us about that? Or why would you define yourself as obnoxious? <laughs> well, I grew up in a home where faith was not an important part of conversation or of daily life. Uh, I think it was thought of respectfully as something that other people did, but not something that my family did. When I got to college and uh, was faced with those questions that often uh, get raised late at night in the dormitory about what do you believe, I pretty much decided I didn't believe any of it, and I slipped from being an agnostic into being an atheist. Uh, when I was a graduate student in uh, physical chemistry, I was pretty much enamored of the fact that the only things that really mattered could be described by uh, second-order differential equations and other <laughs> mathematical uh, representations. And I just had no interest at all in the idea that there was anything outside of the material world, and anybody who hinted that they did were likely to be in, uh, exposed to some of my negative reactions. So that was the obnoxious part. I was not satisfied with simply being an atheist myself. I I thought it was part of my job uh, to try to tear down somebody else's belief if they dared to express it in my presence. <laughs> well, well, then you were obnoxious. <laughs> I guess I was. Yeah. <laughs> what, what triggered uh, your conversion uh, into a theist? What? Well, I had a big change in my professional life plan, deciding that I wasn't, after all, going to be a theoretical physics physical chemist, but instead that I wanted to do something more related to people. So I went to medical school. And in the process of clinical training, one gets exposed to people who are facing really terrible illnesses and almost certain death. And I was impressed in many instances how some of my patients found their faith to be such a strong rock of support at a time where I would have been like running away from it because clearly whatever their faith had been, it was not protecting them against suffering. And I was curious about that, and one of my patients one afternoon asked me straight out, what do you believe, doctor? And I was embarrassed with my sort of thin, stammered answer about not being quite sure. And it suddenly occurred to me that I had done something a scientist was not supposed to do, which is made a decision without looking at the facts. 
without considering the evidence, without looking at the data. Because my atheism was primarily based on not wanting there to be a God, because it was more convenient for me, as opposed to having really considered, okay, what are the facts of the matter? What, what's the rational basis for atheism versus belief? And I figured I'd better do that so that I could shore up my atheism and not have that kind of embarrassing experience again. What are the rational reasons for a belief in God? What did you find to be the rational reasons? Well, I tried to understand what it is that the great faiths of the world represent, and I got pretty confused because uh, I didn't understand them, and I was probably rushing through the Cliff Notes versions trying to figure out what they were talking about. But ultimately, a kindly uh, person handed me a little book and said, this might help you because it's written by an Oxford scholar who traveled the same path, who had been an atheist and was trying to figure out what to believe. The book was Mere Christianity. It's this incredibly thoughtful, well-argued uh, series of essays from the Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis. Um, a major argument that he puts forward in the very first few pages of this book is the argument about the moral law, something I had never really thought about. And this is this knowledge that human beings have of what is right and wrong. It distinguishes us from all other animals. And yet it is not easily explained on the basis of evolution. It is a moral law that calls us in times, at times, in fact, to do things that are destructive to our possible passing on of our DNA, such as when one is asked to do some sacrificial act uh, to try to help somebody else who needs that help. And I found that suddenly quite revealing and quite puzzling, because it's a law that we break all the time. We decide not to pay attention to it, but it is a universal part of humanity. And if one were looking for evidence of a God, and a God who had an interest in human beings, this is a pretty powerful place to find it, right there in your own heart, this sort of signpost towards something that calls you to be good and not to do evil. And I found that compelling uh, on that first day that I read those pages 27 years ago, and I find it compelling today. So, so you believe that there would be no way to come on a moral order without a God? Is that what you're saying? Well, the whole field of evolutionary biology, of sociobiology, evolutionary psychology has attempted to explain uh, this moral law, which everybody kind of agrees is there. I mean, going back to Immanuel Kant, who particularly uh, effectively pointed this out. I don't find those evolutionary explanations very satisfying in terms of really putting uh, a sensible explanation forward for some of the things that I recognize in myself. If, if I'm walking down the bank of a river and I hear a call for help from someone who's in the middle of the river drowning, uh, evolution would say, you know, you don't swim very well. Uh, that person is potentially now not going to be able to pass on their DNA, but yours, you know, it's, it's okay. Just let him go. Uh, even if that guy's your worst enemy, however, there's something inside each of us that says, I should really try to save that person. And that is an affrontery. It's a scandal uh, to an evolutionist in terms of the kind of thinking that you would expect our brains to be wired for. And yet, if you're willing to accept the idea that there's something outside of the purely material in human beings, uh, this would be a pretty good signpost to what that's like. Well, we, you seem to be saying, though, that if, it's, uh, if it can't be described by evolution, then it must be God. Am, am I reading that right? Um, and, and you're right to point out that we have to be careful about not inserting God into places where we have current gaps in our understanding. And elsewhere in this book, uh, The Language of God, mm -hmm. I argue fairly strenuously uh, that the whole current circumstances surrounding intelligent design have fallen into that trap of interposing God in places that evolution hasn't yet quite explained. 
So I would not want to come across as saying my faith is based upon this argument about the moral law, but I find it intriguing. There are other aspects of uh, scientific observations that call out for some explanation beyond the natural. And the obvious one is the Big Bang, and how did the universe come into being? And if there was nothing there uh, 14 billion years ago, and then in a flash of uh, energy, uh, suddenly the universe was created, I don't know how matter creates itself, and that seems to call out for something outside of nature to have done the creating. And I think there's no surprise, therefore, that a lot of people who study that phenomenon are at least deists, if not theists. And when you look at the way the universe is fine-tuned for the possibility of human beings arriving on the scene, when you look at all those constants, the gravitational constant, the strong and weak nuclear force, uh, a whole variety of other constants relating to electromagnetism, and you notice that if any one of those was off by even a tiny amount, then the coalescence of matter that is necessary for stars, planets, galaxies, and ourselves uh, to occur could not have happened. It makes you wonder, uh, wait a minute, it's like the universe knew we were coming or was designed. Uh, to have us be a possibility, and that's an intriguing observation. Mm-hmm. And then, ultimately, for me, after coming to the conclusion that it was more plausible to accept the possibility of God than to say, I know that cannot be, because that seemed like a really irrational position, one had to consider what kind of God is this, and what evidence has he provided of his, of his character, and one then begins to read uh, the, the holy uh, scriptures and other text to try to understand what the world's face understand. And ultimately, after doing so, I became very much compelled by the uh, character of one unique individual in all of history who not only claimed to know God, but claimed to be God, and that being Jesus Christ. And after a couple of years of struggling against uh, this decision, because I really didn't think I wanted to go there initially, I became a Christian. Hmm. Um, let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Francis Collins and the, the author of The Language of God. And um, I, I wanted to, now let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your work in the Human Genome Project. How, how, how is that strengthened or reinforced or your, 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 uh, your belief in God? So I was interested in genetics before I became a believer, but then after becoming a believer, the whole idea of the Genome Project began to take shape, and I was incredibly fortunate to be asked to lead that effort uh, for the United States and in a certain way for the world, because it really was an international project that the U.S. uh, took the lead on. And to have the experience as a scientist in one's own career to see this kind of incredible uh, challenge uh, take shape and be achieved. We have all the letters of the human instruction book, 3.1 billion of them. They're there on the Internet for anybody who has a good idea about how to apply this for human benefit to go and look at. Uh, That was an exhilarating experience just from a purely scientific perspective. But for me, as a believer who sees in the genome basically how God worked out his plan for human beings, uh, this is, as the book says, from that perspective, the language of God. And so having the opportunity to uncover it is a bit of a glimpse into God's mind. And for me, uh, although some people sort of seem a little startled by the use of the word, almost an occasion of worship. How, how well let's let's put it this way how how is god's mind structured <laughs> i wish i knew <laughs> well, you know, well <laughs> let me not make the mistake <laughs> of implying that i have a clue about that no, no but but i'm i was just uh, playing off what you said back there about looking at at the structure and studying the structure of dna <laughs> it it was like 
uh, looking into the mind of God. What, what do you see there? Is it, is it the inspiration you get out of it? Is, is it the precision of it? Is it, uh, it's awesome. Uh-huh. It's utterly awesome, the way in which this whole system works. And, of course, I would not for a minute deny that evolution is the way in which the human genome in its details came to pass. But I also see this as part of God's plan, that God did intend in the moment of creating the universe to have the characteristics of matter such that uh, human beings would become possible, and he used the mechanism of evolution to achieve that goal. So I'm what's called a theistic evolutionist, and most biological scientists that I know who are also believers fall into that same category. Mm And so when one looks then at the output of this long process and has the chance uh, to study those three billion letters, uh, if you are a believer, it is sort of the moment of saying, wow, I've seen something now that human beings didn't know before, but God knew all along. And in that sense, it is a bit of a glimpse into his awesome intelligence, his awesome mind. Now, do you see? Is it, do you see God as a sort of watchmaker God? Do you see it as this life force and energy what is it that, how is it that you, you envision God, if you will, uh, in, in this? Well, it will sound very metaphysical, and again, this is more based on what I know as a spiritual person than a scientific person, but I think the main characteristic of God for me is love, that God is the author of love, that God loved the possibility of human beings enough to make this all happen and created a circumstance where using the mechanism of evolution to prepare uh, the ground, if you will, uh, for an intelligence like ours that would have the ability uh, to have uh, this kind of uh, complex uh, thought process, to have the ability for God to infuse us uh, with a conscience uh, and the moral law, to have a brain that was capable of free will. All of that was part of the process. But then on top of that, I think God expected the possibility of a love relationship between him and his creatures that would be well beyond what material forces could fully explain. And for me, as somebody who has both a scientific and a spiritual worldview, that very much seems like what we are now being blessed with. He's given us the intelligence to explore his natural world and to learn things about it, and I think that is a way of giving uh, sort of uh, credit and worship to him. But he's also given us something well beyond that, the ability to answer questions like, why am I here, and what happens after I die, which science alone is powerless to really answer. We're speaking with Dr. Francis Collins about his book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. Uh, Dr. Collins, do you feel that God led you into the, uh, to be the director of the Human Genome Project and, and led you to this point now where, you're, where you've been converted? I don't know, and uh-huh. I certainly know people who feel very strongly that God has called them in an explicit way. I even know some people who claim that God has spoken to them. Uh, I've never heard God speak. I do feel very fortunate and blessed to have had many doors open that I never really expected uh, to approach that have led to this opportunity to lead the Human Genome Project and now into this next phase of using that information for medical purposes. So if there is uh, a possibility of God having planned those things, I could certainly see his hand in it. But I'm a little reluctant uh, to jump immediately to that conclusion, recognizing that you know thoughtful people who have studied the principles of faith a lot longer than I have, have never quite agreed about exactly whether that's how God works or not. I just want to say, given your belief, are there places that we shouldn't go uh, uh, in your genome project? Do you see kind of a a moral code 
that that should apply to to what you do? You know, I do, but yet I think it's a moral code that both believers and non-believers share, and I think it's another indication of this universal moral law that we've all been given. When I sit in a room in the midst of some ethical debate, um, the people in the room, some are believers, some are not, it's actually remarkable how often we come down to the same consensus regardless of that, because we do all have this general set of principles about what is the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do, and we can generally agree once the details are out there. I do think that that both believers and non-believers are concerned about applications of genomics that might go in the direction that we all really don't think we should in terms of, for instance, cloning human individuals. I don't think uh, that any rational, sensible person now is in favor of that. Or massive alterations in human biology that would affect future generations, a real wholesale genetic re-engineering of our species. I think most people are pretty uneasy about that. I am too. You mean most- about the idea of eugenics? Is that what we're... Well, eugenics has all kinds of flavors, of course. Uh, eugenics is practiced uh, by the Nazis, and by the way, uh, the, the roots of that were really formed in the United States, uh, related to who gets to reproduce and who doesn't. That's not high-tech at all, uh, but we've all come to the conclusion that that's a very dangerous path to go down. But uh, the kind of eugenics where you intentionally uh, add or subtract a particular gene to a particular person in hopes that it will improve their functioning in some way, uh, most of those scenarios are still quite distant in terms of our ability to do them, but I think they are the kinds of scenarios that we should have considerable caution uh, before approaching, uh, questioning whether, in fact, this really is the proper use of our technology. When it comes to curing a terrible disease, I think most of us are totally in favor of that. When it comes to enhancing a normal person to be just a little better than normal, that requires some thought. Well, let me ask you, because there's been a fair amount of discussion about uh, the direction of the of the genome project in the sense that uh, bigger bus- big business is kind of weighed in and they're trying to patent certain things like blue eyes and other characteristics human characteristics mm-hmm. well how do you feel about that does that is that a, do you see that as some kind of an ethical uh, dilemma yes, I do yeah and I've been quite outspoken about this and I take considerable pleasure in the fact that the human genome project from the beginning uh, made it clear uh, that the effort really was to put all this information in the public domain and the t- the information about the human genome which is so fundamental, uh, should not be tied up in any kind of subscription databases or secrecy or intellectual property constraints. And we have succeeded at that. Have the entire we, human uh, genome is publicly accessible by the click of a mouse. Well, well let me ask you, is in fa- aren't, aren't businesses buying up these uh, patents or they're, 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 they're issuing no, Yeah, you're right. There is a problem in that patents were filed before the Genome Project was completed by some groups who were trying to skim the cream of uh, aspects of the genome that they thought would be particularly valuable. And that has created quite a thicket of patents uh, in some instances that are slowing down research and I think are quite regrettable. I think ultimately those patents won't turn out to have been worth very much. They were basically patents that were issued on information that was a long way from being attached to a product that the public needs. And the whole point of patent law was to try to stimulate the development of products. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, I'm afraid, uh, have several more years ahead of us trying to untangle uh, the mess that got created in the 1990s by a veritable gold rush to try to make such claims on the genome. But I think if you ask people, um, both in the public and the private sector, they will generally agree that that was a mistake and that we should be stepping back from that attitude and restricting patents to circumstances where you really do have a discovery that is directly tied to a product where investment is going to be necessary to bring that product to market and where 
where the patent really fits the situation. But in your opinion, that should be almost exclusively tied to curing of some disease or malady or some something of that nature, right? Well, I'm that... a physician, so that's the goal, I believe, of genome research. That ought to be our primary effort, and that's certainly where I want to put yeah. the, uh, the investments uh, that are most important to make right now. We're speaking with Francis Collins, the author of The Language of God. I, I have one more question. How has uh, your, your book been accepted by the scientific community? Well, I've been getting a lot of email, as you might guess, uh-huh. uh, and it's quite variable. Um, and certainly from the scientific responses I've gotten, I would say the majority are respectful and sometimes even pleased uh, to see that somebody is countering uh, what have been a lot of pronouncements uh, by some of the people in my own field uh, of genomics and evolutionary biology that somehow evolution means that God is no longer necessary. I think many scientists are troubled by that claim, especially when you consider that Forty percent of working scientists are believers. So I think they're happy to have something out there that says maybe the Richard Dawkins view of the world is not the only conclusion that a thoughtful scientist can reach. I've had some negative responses, uh, though, from those who really don't see that it's appropriate uh, for somebody, uh, particularly a fairly visible scientist like myself, to be writing about this subject and who think that the mixing together of science and faith uh, is, uh, is a dangerous uh, step forward. And they would just assume that I had kept my ideas to myself. <laughs> so there you have it. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins. Uh, a website, uh, I, I know we have a link from our Weekly Signal site, but is there a particular place you would like people to go to find out more? So if you want to learn more about the Genome Project, uh, the best website is the one called genome.gov, okay. which is the website of the National Human Genome Research Institute, which I direct, and it has a ton of information there about the science. With regard to this book on science and faith, I have done that completely as a private citizen, as what we call an outside activity, so you'll find nothing on the government site about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, our phone call, by the way, right now is being done as I'm taking vacation, because that's oh. the only way I can really do this uh, <laughs> without violating that sort of careful separate between church and state. Okay. Well, thanks uh, for I taking time out. I encourage people to have a look at the book if they want more of this information. The book is The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. Thank you, Dr. Francis Collins, for being on Weekly Signals. Thank you. It's a pleasure. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.